Acts chapter 9. We're kind of in this last little section of Acts chapter 9 here where um, we're going to be switching from Paul for, for a few chapters. The last little commentaries on Paul and we're going to kind of be following Peter. Um, I think one of the things that's important to mention about the book of Acts, and as we read it, is that there's, there's a lot of people that go out in the, in the Gospels, or during the Gospel period, I should say, the period after the Gospels, where the, the, that are doing great works. I think Thomas is a great example. Thomas goes, he ends up in India and is basically single-handedly responsible for this massive ministry that, that starts in India. In fact, you can go to churches today in India that Thomas started. So I think it's important to realize that during, you know, when we're reading the, the book of Acts, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. It predominantly follows two people, Peter and Paul. But that doesn't mean that there weren't other people that were out there doing awesome and amazing things. Because they were. We have Philip, who's going to come back into play for a couple chapters or for a chapter. Uh, we have Peter and Paul to kind of go back and forth. We have Barnabas in chapter 11. Uh, that all these people, people that weren't accounted as the big 12, you know, the kind of the capital A apostles, um, in, in Acts 14, 14, Barnabas is called an apostle with a little a, a person sent on a mission. So all, you know, many, many people had apostolic ministries and were doing really great things. Just like today, there's no new apostles in the, in the, the sense of like the capital A you know, people who were witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, people that walked with him on the earth. So there'll never be new apostles, but there are many, many of us uh, that actually, and, and, and maybe you can make an argument to say all of us have an apostolic ministry that God's called us to move on and to walk with him and to serve him uh, with a, our whole hearts and our whole lives. And so as we kind of uh, after this little section this morning, we're going to break off into Peter and follow him, and then we'll, we'll also talk about Barnabas and so forth. But in this last little section about Paul, uh, two weeks ago, um, I don't normally necessarily title the, the, uh, the teachings, but two weeks ago, I just called it a new norm. And if you remember, it was basically Paul gets saved, Ananias meets him, prays for him, he receives his sight, uh, and then he begins to speak in Damascus. So for context's sake, let's uh, pick back up in, in uh, the second half of verse 19. It says there in Acts chapter 9, the second half of verse 19, For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his, the, uh, this name? And he has not come here for this purpose, or excuse me, and has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. And, and really just kind of focused on in our world today, you know, how can we be those that are willing to be persecuted, willing to have this new norm? Up until this point, Paul is the persecutor. Paul is the one dragging people uh, to prison. Paul is the one torturing people for their faith. Paul is that guy, the guy with all the privilege, all the intelligence. That's who he is. Then he gets saved, and his life radically changes, and now he's the persecuted. Now he's the one who's chased, including the very first city. I'm not saying that if you're not being persecuted, you're not a Christian or you know, nothing like that. That's not my heart. We don't live in this time. We don't live in this day. But what I am saying is that, and what we talked about last week, was the, or two weeks ago, that when we receive Jesus, there becomes a new norm in our lives. And sometimes it's persecution. Sometimes it may be hated. Sometimes it may be mocked. But more than anything, it's us being willing to have God work in our lives. Right? That's, that's our whole end of the bargain. We got saved. It was a free gift of grace. We received Jesus as Savior. It's called eternal life for a reason because you can't lose it. So we received eternal life. Now we have a calling, and, excuse me, and we received the Holy Spirit in us to empower us and to guide us, right? Convict us, lead us, however we'd like to look at it. So now as a believer, it's our responsibility if we want to grow and if we want to honor God to walk in what the Holy Spirit calls us to. Does that make sense? To, to say yes when he uh, speaks to our hearts, to say yes when he says it's time to give that up. And the more we do that, the more we're conformed to the image of Christ in this life, the more our soul is changed, the more our heart is cleansed, the more we begin to walk with God and we really begin to perceive the things that God has and he says are blessings 
as blessings. The less that we do that, the more that we hold on to our own life, the more that we assist on our own way, the more that we reject the Holy Spirit, we don't become less saved. It's eternal life. It's a free gift. But we don't actually get to partake of eternal life. We're not living in the life. And the crazy thing about that is that as believers, even though we have the Holy Spirit, even though God is reaching out to our hearts, even though He's encouraging us, even though He's putting His hand heavy upon us in conviction, all those different things, the crazy thing is even as believers with all these benefits and truths, when we begin to ignore the Holy Spirit, we begin to measure the Holy Spirit, judge the Holy Spirit, and as John, 1 John says, we call Him a liar by saying, it's, we don't sin, we're not really sinning, it's not a big deal what we're doing. It's crazy how our minds will work. The, the farther we get from Christ, the more convinced we get that the life of Christ is actually weak or hard or, I don't know, unworthy, unfruitful. And then the closer we get to Christ, the more that we realize actually the unfruitful life is the life that insists on itself. And I'm not talking about just fruitful for those around us, although that's true, but it's fruitful for our, our own fellowship with Jesus. He is eternal life. He told us to know him is eternal life. So Paul enters into this new norm of persecution, this new norm of life, and it kind of continues. So here we go. It says there, verse 23, When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him. We looked at this last week. But their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. So he escapes Damascus. And, um, well, we'll keep going. Verse 26, And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him, and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists. Remember, those are Greek-speaking Jews. But they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up and walking in the fear of the Lord. And in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied so in this next section here, we see Paul gets lowered through a basket. He gets away from Damascus. They want to kill him. And then he goes to Jerusalem, and he begins again to speak in the, uh, in, in the perhaps the temple, but he's talking to these, these Hellenistic Jews. They're Jews that have believed, or excuse me, the, the, in this case, they're Jews that have not believed, but they were kind of converts. In other words, they were from the Greek world. They had converted to Judaism. So he's speaking to them about Jesus. First thing I want to point out here as a side note is that just because you're right doesn't mean people will accept you. I think we can all agree that Paul is probably a fairly good reasoner, right? He wrote the book of Romans. He knows the ins and outs of the gospel. He's a genius. This guy is probably going to be one of, if not the best, uh, you know, arguers if, or debaters for the gospel that has ever lived. And when they heard the truth from the most qualified person that we know of to give the truth... What was their reaction? To kill the guy with the truth. So we don't have to be surprised if, if people hate us when we're sharing the truth in love. All right? We don't have to be surprised that when we have the truth for people, their response is, we want to kill you. We want you out of our city. Because the, the, it's not even necessarily the bad news, but the hard news of the gospel is humans are inherently wrong. Right? That humans are inherently sinful. That from birth, we're morally defective. From birth, we're willing to do the most wicked of sins. From birth, we are headed to hell. And that is an intolerable word for many people. It's kind of bizarre to me. I don't, I don't know if, if, if this will come through in translation. It's bizarre to me that part of receiving the gospel is actually humbling myself. <laughs> that I have to humble myself and acknowledge that I have a big problem with sin. And the person that is unwilling, us, maybe in the past, maybe now, I don't know, who are unwilling to acknowledge the reality of our condition and who we are intrinsically, we, we can't truly receive the gospel. 
Because the gospel is only good news to the, to the sick, to the broken, to the sinful. The gospel is insulting to the proud and to the, the self-righteous. Because the gospel really brings us to a place where we acknowledge, I can't save myself. I can't atone for my sins. I can't do enough to make up for it. When you and I, for most of us probably, when you do something wrong, you, I don't know, treat somebody poorly or whatever, there's probably an urge like, I'm going to go back to that person and I'm going to make this right. You know, I, I was, I, you know, oh, I was, maybe you were rude to a waiter or a waitress and maybe you're going to come back and go, oh, man, I'm really sorry. Let me give you a tip. I, I was, it was my fault. I was, I was out of line. And then we should do that if we're rude to people or we sin. We should make it right. 100% we should do that. But we can't do that with God. We can't go back to God and say, hey, I've had some immoral thoughts, been rude to a couple of people, so here's what I'm going to do. Church Sundays, a couple of midweeks, let's not get crazy, and maybe I'll get some gospel tracts to hand out at Halloween. Are we good? No. We, we, for because of who we are, because of our very, our hearts, our sin nature, we can't, we can't buy that back. So the gospel can be very offensive for a person who says, because what is Paul combating? Righteousness through the law. They were seeking to justify themselves through their own works. And that's, that really hasn't changed, has it, in human beings? It doesn't matter if it's uh, Judaism. It doesn't matter if it's uh, Islam. It doesn't matter if it's just hedonism. We're always trying to buy back and try to make up for the bad that we know that we have. And so to be able to instead say, oh, I need the free gift and acknowledge, yes. So what's happening here, people are not willing for that. So church, don't be surprised. Don't be upset. Don't be scared. People are going to reject the gospel because there's an element to it that they just don't want. They don't want, we don't want to always acknowledge, hey, I got nothing. So they are trying to kill him. So then he goes to Jerusalem, and he shows up in Jerusalem, and, uh, and he tries to kind of hang out with the disciples. I don't know wh where he tried to meet them or how it went or who all was still in Jerusalem, um, but he goes and tries to meet with the other apostles, and he shows up, and they're like, nah, man, We're, you can't come in. We're not going to have anything to do with you. We, we just, no, leave. And so Barnabas comes along, and I've kind of wondered where Barnabas came from. Like, where was he? What was he doing? We know that there was a huge persecution and many of the people scattered, but the apostles stayed behind. If you recall, you know, Barnabas means son of encouragement. His real name is Joseph. Barnabas is a nickname that was given to him by the apostles. Our first example of Barnabas is in Acts chapter 4, right before Ananias and Sapphira. Barnabas is a Levite by descendant, but he owned land, which is kind of interesting. But as a Levite, he gives a piece of land that he owned out of Cyprus, which is a little island kind of in the northwest from Jerusalem in the Mediterranean Sea. He owns some land in Cyprus, and he, brings the, he sells it, and he brings that money, and he lays it at the disciples' feet. And they remember they were taking money because you had 3,000 people that were from out of town, many of them, who get saved, and they don't want to leave. They want to stay there. They want to be part of this new... Um, following of Christ, this new following of Jesus, the Mashiach, right? So that there they are. And so people are giving land, they're doing these things. So that's Barnabas. He was known by the apostles, obviously had some sort of relationship with them, obviously was somehow involved in the early church. We don't know all of it, but we know he was involved enough that he comes along, he gets this nickname from the apostles, and they're like, oh, it's that guy, it's Joseph, he's Barnabas, he's, he's the son of encouragement. That's, that's who he is, okay? So Barnabas shows up on the scene, and he goes to the apostles, he's known by them, and he says, no, 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 this guy's legit. He says, he got knocked down on a road on his way into Damascus, and he just tells them the story. He got blinded and nice, and he goes through this whole thing, and he says, then in Damascus, he was preaching the gospel like crazy and arguing with people and preaching Jesus. So the apostles go, hey, we're in, great. Come, come be with us. And it says that he went in and out among them, which means he, he was with them. He was going with them places. So as he's going out, Paul is very passionate for the gospel. He's very passionate for the people of Israel, right? We see that. He even says so in Romans chapter 9, where he makes the proclamation, if it were possible, I would render myself accursed 
for Israel. In other words, he says, if it were possible, I would go to hell in their place. I would be accursed, which is a pretty, pretty radical statement. But he says, he says, that's how much I care about Israel. But if, if we recall, he even tells later on, uh, I, I can't remember if it's Acts 15, but Paul will tell them that Peter is the apostle to the Israelites, just like he is an apostle to the Gentiles. So even though he has this great passion for the Israeli people and for his own people, he is not the one that God has sent to his people. And every time he goes and tries to talk to Jewish people, this is the result of it. So there's an interesting point in this, an interesting fact, and I don't know how specifically we can apply it, but I think it's noteworthy that the apostles are able to permanently live in Jerusalem. But Paul shows up, and they're like, we have to kill this fool. And I don't know why that is. I don't know why that James and Peter and John, Peter seems to be doing some, some more traveling, but why the rest of the apostles live in Jerusalem in peace, but as soon as Paul comes, they try to kill him instantaneously, or, or not long after he's preaching in the, in the synagogues and arguing with them. So he gets sent away. The, the brothers see that they're trying to kill him. They go, okay, and they send him up to Tarsus. So Tarsus is where Paul was born. And Tarsus, if you look at a map, you know, the Mediterranean Sea kind of goes like this around. There's others, but we're just talking about this area. You kind of have Jerusalem over here, and then you have the coastline, Gaza, and different places. And Tarsus is kind of up and around in the north of the Red Sea. So they bring him to a port, which is about a 65-mile walk from where they were in Jerusalem. They walk him to this port, and he takes a boat, and he goes up to Tarsus, where he's born. And he spends some time up in Tarsus. So as soon as Paul leaves... The testimony is this, and we'll, I'll read it again real quick. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they multiplied. So, so Paul leaves, and the church just takes off, and, and they're, they're living in the fear of the Lord, they're being filled with the Spirit, and all this great stuff is happening. I'm not necessarily making a correlation with that, other than the fact that the persecution at this point seems to follow Paul. Um, and not that, that, that the Hellenistic Jews became pro-Christ or something like that, but they were willing to, uh, at least in part, leave the, leave the church alone for a while. So I kind of want to talk about two things out of this passage. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is, is how do we deal with rejection or what we might perceive as uh, a negative event that occurs? Because that's, I mean, think about it. Paul is now 0-2 in one sense. He shows that he gets saved, he shows up to Damascus, and it's like, boom, he's out there preaching the gospel, he's going for it, and they're like, we're going to kill you. So he has to leave. So he shows up to Jerusalem, and the, and the fellows at Jerusalem, he shows up, and they're like, no, you cannot be with us. We do not trust you. And Barnabas comes along and says, hey, hey, he's cool. <laughs> it's okay. And they say, okay, you can be with us. And then instantly, or, or it seems to be immediately, not long after, he's out there, he's talking, and what happens? The Jews are like, we're going to kill you. And the brothers, it's, it's interesting wording, and I want to be really careful because I don't want to make a bunch of inferences, but it's not that Paul left. It doesn't say Paul chose to leave. It, doesn't say, it says that Paul was sent away by the brothers. So we can make of that what you will. But he's sent away by them because of this persecution that's been drummed up, and he goes to Tarsus. Tarsus was not, obviously, uh, uh, a Jewish city. It had nothing to do with Israel. It was outside of Israel. It was in uh, Sicilia. And it was a major Roman hub, actually. So here's this man who has this deep, deep burden for these people, and he's continually rejected by him. And later on, or perhaps at this point, comes to the conclusion he's not called to be the specific minister to them and is actually called to a different ministry, which is way up north, nothing to do with Jerusalem, nothing to do with the Sanhedrin, nothing to do with Jews at all, although there might have been Jews there. So how do we deal with things in our lives that can be perceived as very discouraging? That's the first thing I want to talk about. Secondly, I want to talk about Barnabas, because honestly, Barnabas is one of my favorite characters in the whole scripture. We can't always succeed out of it, 
But Barnabas is just everybody's buddy. Barnabas just literally hooks people up all the time. And including with Paul. In fact, when Barnabas is going to go to Antioch, they say this new church kind of sprouts up in Antioch, an epicenter for idolatrous worship. I would have loved to see the first Sunday at Antioch. And I know I joke about this probably too much in my teachings, but they're literally going from like sex with children as a form of worship to singing songs about Jesus. So like having that first Sunday must have been pretty fascinating where they're like, who brought the red meat? Where are the temple prostitutes? How does all this work? And so who do they send to help that mess? Barnabas, a man full of grace, right? That's what we're told. He's a man full of grace and love. That's who Barnabas is. And so Barnabas shows up on the scene of what I would suspect is a radically dysfunctional church coming out of radical idolatry and weird teaching. And he shows up on the scene and he begins just to to bless these guys. And it says that he observed the grace of God among them, and he rejoiced. And then Barnabas realizes, like, hmm, these guys need a solid teacher. And he rings up Paul on the, you know, apostle bat phone and says, hey, we need you to come down here. Barnabas is such an awesome example because he knows his lot in life. He knows he's not Paul. He knows he's not going to lead these guys like Paul's going to lead these guys. And and his whole deal is like, I'm just going to love these people, and I'm going to minister and observe the grace of God among these people. So he's just such a good example. He's going to appear, I think, three or four more times, actually, uh, in, uh, in the book of Acts. In fact, Barnabas is such a compassionate person that at one point, him and Paul split ways. That's, that's a few chapters from now. where Because at one point when Paul and, and Barnabas are on kind of their first missionary journey, they have kind of this uh, luggage carrier, and his name is John Mark, from the guy that wrote the Gospel of Mark. And John Mark, he, something happens, and he ditches them partway through the journey. It gets a little too hot for him. Whatever happens, and Mark ejects. And so Paul, when their next missionary journey comes around, Barnabas, or I think Paul says to Barnabas, hey, let's go visit all the churches again. Barnabas says, says, that's great. I'll grab Mark. And Paul says, no, we're not taking Mark. And Barnabas says, says, no, we're taking Mark. And Paul says, no, we're not taking Mark. He ditched us when things got hard. So we're not taking him again. We can't have people on the journey that are going to let us down. And, and Barnabas, out of his, his love for Mark, and if I'm not mistaken, Mark was his nephew, but his love for Mark says, no, man, I, I can't. They split ways over it. He says, I'm not going to ditch out on Mark. And he grabs Mark, and he goes north, and, and God's work is accomplished. And Paul visits the churches again, and he takes Silas. So I'm not advocating for disagreements in the work or something like that, and God used for good. That disagreement. I'm not even saying necessarily the disagreement was wrong. It was just two people who had two different perspectives. It's a good perspective of we're going to be in the thick of it. We don't want to bring someone who's going to let us down. That's a healthy thing to think about. It's also a great perspective to say, hey, this guy let us down, but I think he's gold. And actually later on, way later, when Paul is uh, nearing his execution by Nero, he's going to write back to, I can't remember what, what church he writes back to, he's going to write back and he's going to say, send John Mark to me for he is, uh, how does he say it? He's faithful, but basically he's, he's a legit guy in the ministry. So in essence, John Mark kind of ends up earning stature with Paul because he continues with Barnabas. So all that to say is there's two, I think, very important ideas and things that we deal with as human beings that happen in these few little passages right here. These seemingly just kind of narrative, hey, this is what goes on. You have Barnabas who goes to bat for a guy that, that you know, everybody was afraid of. And you have Paul who now is coming on this journey of rejection and he keeps going on the journey. He doesn't get discouraged. He doesn't just say, ah, oh, it's not worth it. He doesn't say, I'm not called to this because there's been some difficulty. He doesn't say, all oh, these people let me down, so I'm done. He doesn't say any of that. So how do we as Christians, first and foremost, respond to 
when people or when circumstances seem to let us down. And I want to flip over to Luke chapter 6. In Luke chapter 6, we have a quoting. This is actually the Sermon on the Plain. Um, if, you're, if you're interested... It's very similar to the Sermon on the Mount, but it's in a different time and a different place. It makes sense that if the Gospels were going to cover three years of Jesus' teaching, that Jesus would have taught the same thing in multiple places, right? So what we have here is the Sermon on uh, the Plain. But in, in, in Luke chapter 6, and in verse 27, we're going to read a little section here. This is what Jesus says, and these are, these are kingdom values, okay? He says, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies and do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from the one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. For if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. And He goes on. But Jesus, explaining how economics in the kingdom work, is now telling His disciples, these are the principles of the kingdom of God. As we look at this, there, this isn't just things to do. These are, in, in, in some respect, there's this a big list of behaviors to adopt, right? So these are kind of goal behaviors. But, but the goal, I think we can agree, the goal of Jesus in saving Christians is not to just give us better behaviors, right? I mean, there's lots of things that can do that. You can go to scared straight. You can go to rehab. You can go to prison. You can go to work camps. You can, there's a million programs in the world to try to change your behavior. There you can read, uh, I don't know how many books there are about, you know, 15,000 essential habits that successful people have and, you know, whatever. And those books can be very valuable because they can help us to change habitual behaviors and these type of things. But Jesus is all about the heart, right? Isn't that what he came to do? He says he came to give us life and life more abundantly. And just doing stuff is never life abundant either. It's, it's, you know, if you were to ask my daughter, say, is, kitty, is cleaning the kitty litter box every other day, is that life giving to you? It's probably not. It's probably life robbing for them, right? Or mowing the lawn. You probably don't go out and mow your lawn and be like, this is just giving me life. This is amazing. It could if you, you know, spent your time, I suppose, wisely mowing the lawn, but just activity typically does not do that. But these are the activities that reflect something. They reflect love, right? So these are the activities that come out of kingdom value, the activities that come from what Jesus wants to do on the inside of our hearts. So when we come to these places, when we read these things, it's interesting, I think it's noteworthy where he says, for example, uh, well, I lost my place here, I'm get my glasses again. He says there, um, if you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? And the funny thing is, at first note, it's a lot of benefit to me. Isn't that, in fact, the very point that he's making? That if you just love people that will love you back, you're getting a reciprocated reality. You're getting a reciprocated desire. So then when he asks the question, if you just lo love the people that love you, what benefit of that to you? You can be like, well, I won't get hurt. Um, I'll have good companionship. Uh, I'll be able to do stuff with someone that I trust. Uh, I'll be able to voice my opinions and think about things. I can think of a lot of benefits to loving people that love me, right? It's why we got married. Most of us did not marry someone who hated us. Like, hey, what are you doing for your life? I thought I despised you. Sounds good. Are we in? We're in. Let's do this. No, we married the one that we married because they loved us. They treated us well. Then they married us, and, well, then we went to counseling. But before that, <laughs> right, that's why we married the people that we married. And there was great benefit to it. 
So clearly Jesus is introducing a completely different idea here. And when he's saying, if you, if you give to the one that can give back to you, what benefit is that to you? If you love the one that loves you, what benefit is that to you? Well, those have plenty of physical and, and good benefits, things that are, are not evil. But the point that he's making here is kingdom values. And he's saying, if you always make the safe bet, how can you grow and the people around you grow? What benefit is that? If you always live your life making the safe bet, making sure that you don't get hurt, making sure that the, you know, whatever it might be, that you're safe, that your bubble is not popped, what benefit is that to you and really to the kingdom? And the point is very little benefit, typically. Very little benefit. And then when he goes on from there and he says, uh, he makes a point, he says, and this is maybe shocking. Uh, In verse 35, he says, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. So that there's the motivation of reward, and you will be sons of the Most High. You will be acting in the calling that God has placed on your life, which is to be his child. You are his child by right, correct? John 1 tells us that all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ have the right to be called children of God. So this isn't a salvation issue. This isn't Jesus saying, you better do these things or you're not saved. What he's saying is if you do these things, you're acting in the calling that God has given to you. You're acting like a child of God. But then verse 35, now he's talking about a reaction. It's a spiritual, emotional, sometimes, um, I guess they call it a reality reaction. That's verse 35. But love your enemies and do these things, and you will be sons of the Most High. Check this out. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Just take a second right now and just think of the most ungrateful and evil person you've ever met. Hopefully you're thinking of yourself, but if you're not, God's kind to that person. God loves that person. Who's the most evil person we could think of right now? Hitler. He did some pretty rough stuff. Stalin. What was his body count like? 16 million, right? He's kind to them. He loved them, loves them. He wanted them to get saved. You know, Hitler was a Lutheran. You know, you can, I'm not, that's not a dispersion on, or a, I'm not casting anything on, on Lutheran churches, but you can actually, so was Himmler. You can read their letters from early, you can go online today and, and read Himmler's letters in his early life even as a boy, as a Lutheran. I'm not saying I know anything about their walk with God previous to those points, but God loved those guys. He wanted great things for those guys. They chose otherwise. But he was kind to them. You know, everybody was two-year-olds old once. Everybody was three once. Everybody was four and five. Everybody wanted a birthday party once. Everybody. He's kind to those people. When we got saved and we received God's Holy Spirit, He gave us power, right? That's what we saw. That was the promise was in Acts, to receive power to be His witnesses. Power not to do something per se, but to be something, to be witnesses, to be a reflection of who Jesus is in this life. We can suppress that through anger or greed or lust or whatever, fill in the blank with our own sins. We can suppress that witness. And unfortunately, oftentimes we're very good at it. Or, if you'll notice, in most of Paul's writings, the word let comes up a lot. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Let the word of God dwell in you richly. Let, over and over again. What is let? Let is giving permission. In the book of Hebrews, let us go on. Constantly, let, let, let. In other words, the walk of the Christian is not now me pushing and trying and, oh, okay, I'm going to give to every single person that begs of me. Hey, can I have $500? Okay, that was my rent money, but sure. That's not what he's saying. We're instead letting the Spirit flow through us. Is this a wise decision? I've made commitments. I should pay my rent. My kids should not go homeless. No, I will not give you $500 because I have previous responsibilities. So the point isn't like always do these things. The point is now let God and his Holy Spirit that we have work through us and let us say yes to God as he prompts us to be involved in the building of his kingdom. 
So he says, hey, the person that can't pay you back, loan to that person, never expecting to get it back. You know, I can be a pretty greedy person. Like, you know, somebody wants to uh, borrow, like, a mower or something like that. Well, now my mower is, like, 15 years old and doesn't even have an air filter. So if you want to borrow it, have at it. But the, the day one I had my mower, I went out and bought a, a Honda mower. It was when we lived in Warrington. And I, my grass was, like, I don't know, really tall. And I went out there and I was like, this mower is amazing. I love this mower. It's my own. It's my precious. And I remember... There, you know, people are like, hey, can I borrow your mower? And it's like, I know what the Bible says, but I love this mower. What if the bag gets torn? What if it gets broken? What if they dull the blade? What if they seize the engine? It's my mower. And you have to deal with that. And, and I'm not saying that the answer is always loan out your stuff. I'm not saying that either. I, I think it really is a a leading of the Holy Spirit. But there needs to be a heart attitude of like, hey, this isn't my mower. This is Jesus' mower. And he lent it to me. And, and he didn't ask me, you know, he wasn't worried if I was going to trash it. He just gave me a job that let me buy a mower. Actually, I think in that case, we sold the house and made some money, and that's why I bought the mower. But, you know, the point being is that there's opportunity. So in lending to someone who can't pay back for my mower... I'm creating an opportunity for kindness, for the kingdom values to flow out of my life and to show someone something. And when they, when they bring it back and it's broken in half and you say, well, okay, can you fix it? Oh, I really can't. Okay. I'll get the super glue and we'll see what happens. You know, whatever, whatever it might be. And you can leave it up to another brother or sister to come along and say, didn't you borrow that dude's mower and like bring it back broken in half? And they can deal with it. They can fight for you. But we don't have to insist on our own stuff. And all of a sudden, somebody experiences forgiveness. Someone experiences love like they maybe never have. So we're able to produce and to give kingdom values out by just letting God's word work in our heart. So how do we deal with the discouragements? How do we deal with when things go bad? How do we deal with when we try to show up to the very people that we love and tell them about Jesus? And they're like, I want to kill you. I hate you for this. We deal with it the same way that we deal with any other of these, these items that we've talked about. By letting, letting the Holy Spirit and the Word of God dwell in us. That when some, it's a very practical battle. And I think that for many of us, we, because some of I shouldn't say many of us, for some of us, we got saved and just kind of like set adrift. You know, maybe you went to a Billy Graham crusade or you read a tract or you got saved and then it was like, God bless you. And so you went out into the big bad world, and you're like, well, I know Jesus is Lord, whatever that means. I know I'm forgiven, but now what do I do? And then something bad happens, and we're like, how could you do this to me? And I can't, you know, whatever it might be. But the reality is that the Christian life is literally a mental battle. It's a spiritual battle that occurs in the mind. So when my more gets brought back to me, or when I suffer rejection from someone I love so much, or I just wish that they'd watch this YouTube video and believe in the Illuminati with me, or whatever it might be, or the gospel, and they reject it, the battle starts in my mind. And it can go all sorts of different ways. It can go in anger. How dare you reject me? How dare you reject Jesus? How dare you infringe on my rights? How dare you do this thing? Is that anger of the Spirit? Is that anger from God? Is that God saying, yeah, stick it to that guy for what he's done? Or is it of me? Or a worldly idea? Or is it of Satan? So as soon as I have that thought, that thought which is contrary to the gospel of God, to the counsel of God, and the kingdom values, what do I do with that thought? I take it captive. Right? I 1 Corinthians 10, that bad boy. And I say, you know what, Lord? That thought's not from you. That's from me. I'm confessing what that thought is. It's sin. It misses your mark. I confess, I don't love this guy that wants to borrow my mower. I don't love it. I truly, there's something inside of me that's willing to rage at someone who won't receive the gospel. And that's me. That's my sin. And that's why or I should say, and that's when we just, we call it our own. It's nobody else's fault. It's my sin. I confess it to you. Are we confessing it to be forgiven? No. 
you are saved. You are cleansed. You're, you're forgiven. We're confessing it for fellowship's sake. For example, in 1 John, when John says, I'm writing to you guys about fellowship, so when you confess your sins, know that he's faithful and just to forgive your sins, cleanse you from all unrighteousness. John's not saying that you get saved again. He's saying that just as in any relationship where there's a lack of uh, a trust, where there's a lack of honesty, it's not a real relationship either. It's a nightmare. It's a stress. It's oppression. And so we come back and say, you know what, that wasn't of you, that was of me, forgive me. The, the word uh, is uh, homologeo in, in Greek, it's to say the same thing. Lord, what you said is right. I'm confessing that to you. Thank you for being kind to me. And you move on with your life. And 30 seconds later, you go, but I'm more. You say, no, Lord, that's not of you. That's of me. I'm giving that to you. Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. I want to see victory in this part of my life. That is the battle for your soul. That is how Christianity works. This idea that Christianity is that we just kind of get saved, we show up to church once in a while, hopefully we feel good about it, sing some songs, and then walk out, and everything's just going to be peachy king, and, it's, and I just, I'm just going to one day, like, Holy Spirit lightning will zap me, and I'll never hate or lust or go with people that do ever again. That's a fairy tale. That thinking leads us to shipwreck. The reality is that you and I have a responsibility to walk with God, to abide with Christ, to stay near Him. And the more we don't deal with our junk, the more we don't deal with our trash in our hearts, the further we get. Until one day you wake up and you go, how did I get here? And it was really simple. It all started way back when, you start, when we had thoughts and we entertained them. And then that led to actions. And actions led to habits. And habits led to character. And then we are where we are. So how do we deal with disappointment? Disappointment is one of the things that will shipwreck us in our Christian faith because on this earth, we, <clears throat> we will always be disappointed. Not with Jesus, but with each other, with the economy, with politics, with all that stuff, with health, all those things. We'll, we'll always be disappointed. And whenever we attribute disappointment to God, we get in big trouble. But we don't do it. What we do is we don't, with disappointment, we don't say, God, this is your fault. You disappointed me. I have found that in my own life and in people that I've had the, the privilege to talk to, nine times out of ten, it's, it comes down to a weird legalism. It comes down to this. I've been faithful, so you owe me. Look at all the stuff I've done for you, God. I preach the gospel. I do my devotions. I have two devotion books, morning and evening. Morning and evening, God! And now I have cancer. Or now my wife does. Or now one of my children has problems. Or now this person treated me poorly that I thought would never treat me poorly. And now this, and now that. And so we never just come out and say, you did this to me, God. But what we do is we say, I've been faithful and you owe me. And why haven't you done this for me? Because I've done all this for you. And in a sense... It's really scary because it exposes our true heart, doesn't it? This whole time I've been earning. This whole time I've been making God my debtor. This whole time I've been saying, you owe me. We've actually left the primary principle of the gospel that makes people upset. I have nothing good in me. I really can't earn anything except Christ. I have value because Jesus said I'm worth his own life. I have, I, you have intrinsic value more than anything on the planet. You as an individual do because God loves you and he has the best thing for you. But because we get so crazy in our own sin, when we experience disappointment, so often we, we revert back to our works and we say, you owe me. And then that's just, it's shipwrecked faith in moments because God is a good parent. If you have a, a, a child that's telling you, you owe me, you owe me, I mowed the lawn and you owe me, I did this and you owe me, you better give me this. Do you give that to your child? Why not? It could be a nightmare. Because what do they learn? If I pitch a fit, I get what I want. Which is, that makes it worse, right? Because then you're in the store. And the kid learns, if I, nobody likes a screaming kid, especially the parents. 
And you try to ignore it. Like you try to be like, I don't hear you. But inside you're like, I'm going to go to jail soon. Right? I mean, it's like, this, it's unreal. But if you give in and you, and you go, okay, fine, we'll, we'll get the lucky charms, then your kid learns, oh, screaming equals lucky charms. God is a really good parent. And even though we, we kick and wail and blame, he's just, he says, no, I'm not going to, I love you too much to, to, to fix that for you right now. Because you're going to get a misconception about what you've earned. Not because he's uh, too much ego, but because he knows that he has to work us out of us. Oh, that we might decrease, but that he would increase in our hearts and our lives. We make it through discouragement by inviting God to work in our heart and dealing with our thought life. Lastly, Barnabas. Barnabas in four minutes. So Barnabas, again, I already said he's, he's one of my absolute favorites. He goes and he gets Paul. He brings him to the guys. He says, no, Paul is super legit. You can trust him. Um, I'll read it briefly. So it says, verse 26, when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were afraid of him. That must have been so discouraging, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord. And he goes on. So Barnabas nabs him. Somehow he finds out. Maybe he was there. We don't know. But he grabs Paul, takes him to them, and he, and he does this reconciliation. What people need the most is friends. In this world, Jesus is the most. Okay, that's, we need Jesus the most. So please don't say, James said we don't need Jesus. No, I'm not saying From among each other, what we need the most is we need friends. We need people that are for us. Now, I want to say from the very beginning of this three-minute explanation, I am not saying that we don't share the truth with each other. The Proverbs say that the, 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 the uh, strikings of a friend... Right? The smack of a friend is better than a kiss from an enemy. In other words, a true friend is someone who knows and is willing to share the truth with us. Right? That's completely rejected in our society, unfortunately. Societally, a friend in our society is someone who always agrees with you, and when you say something that even if it's outlandish and not true, but you're very emotional about it, they go, yeah. I mean, that's, I'm pretty sure what like 80% of Facebook is. Just this, or any social media. This happened to me. This person sucks. Now I need a bunch of responses to that. And, and all the true friends go in and go, yeah. And all the jerks go in and are like, well, have you thought about, they send a private message and say, well, have you thought about this? Or maybe we could get some coffee and talk about it. And that's why they made the middle finger emoji, I'm pretty sure. So we have this dynamic in our society that's really breaking down what true friendship is. But a true, so no point when we're talking about love or care or friendship are we saying that it, it, it somehow removes truth. But a friend is gracious, right? A friend is kind. Isn't a friend someone who will hear you out and gently go, well, that's, a, that's an interesting idea. The government's trying to kill you. Well, you know, how did you come to this? Where have you experienced this? Could it have been this? That's a friend, right? A jerk just goes, you're an idiot. If the government wanted to kill you, they would just do it. Have you not seen Jack Ryan? I mean, let's be honest here. That's what, it, that's what a, a rude person says. But a friend sits down. Well, why do you feel that way? Why do you think that? How did that happen to you? Could there be another way that this, this, this could be going down right now? How can I help you? Have you ever thought about this in the scripture before? How, does this help you? See, there's friendship, and that's what Barnabas does over and over and over again. He's just a guy who shows up, ministers the grace of God to people in truth, in kindness, realizes when he can't help anymore and finds someone who does, but he's just a friend to that person. And that's what we all need, especially right now in the climate we're in, where there's isolation and fear for many, many people. And we're not, we're not here to condemn that. We're not here to, that's not our gig, I hope, right? 
Hopefully our gig is to say, how can we help you? We, if, if we're wearing masks, we're wearing masks for our neighbor. If we're wearing masks, we're doing it so that we can, we can minister to someone who may be fearful. If we're not wearing masks, hopefully we're not wearing masks because we feel that that's our conviction from the Lord and not Jay Inslee. All that we do, whether we live or die, should be done unto the Lord. Every decision that we make and thought that we, we entertain should be unto the Lord. That doesn't mean we can never watch TV or have fun or vacation or any of that stuff. It means that the things that we do, we do it because that's what God wants me to do. And some things are very generic, and we already have a prescription for that in obeying our government. And some things are going to be very specific, and they're going to be different, and they're going to be things where the Word of God clashes with what our government says, and we're going to do what the Word of God says. So there, let's, let's be those people who love in the scriptural love. And, and we'll read that. We'll close with this passage, the wedding passage in uh, 1 Corinthians 13. It's actually not a wedding passage, although it's great for weddings. It's funny because 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, is sandwiched between, you might be surprised, chapter 12 and chapter 14. And in those chapters, it's all about spiritual gifts. So the love chapter, is, it's not like this Paul writes to the Corinthians and says, here's how you do a wedding or here's how you do it. He's writing to the Corinthians and says, this is how ministry works in the Holy Spirit. This is how ministering through the Spirit works. That's what First uh, uh, Corinthians 13 is. I'd like to start with the last verse of uh, 12. The end of uh, verse 31 in chapter 12 says this, and I will show you still a more excellent way. So he's just gone through a bunch of the different gifts and how they're allotted and how they work. And he says, but I want to show you a more excellent way than this. And he says, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love. Now, this is not phileo, this is, uh, which would be brotherly love or affection. Uh, this is agape. This is moral love, the love we talked about a couple weeks ago that desires the absolute best for my neighbor, for my brother, uh, for the average run-of-the-mill heathen. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I'm a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. It's not going to be melodious. It will not be easy to listen to. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge... In other words, I know everything, all knowledge. I know how corks work in atoms. I know the ins and outs of all the mysteries of God. He says, if I had all of that, and if I had all the faith so as to remove mountains, and that's in the kind of the present active, meaning to continually, every time, move a mountain. But I don't have agape. I don't have moral love. I am nothing. If I give away all that I have and deliver my body to be burned and I have not love, I gain nothing. Now, this is interesting because you can give away all that you have and let your body be burned for someone else and they may profit, right? If you have a soup kitchen and hate the people you're giving soup to, they still get soup, right? It may not be a pleasurable experience for them, but they will still get soup. There will be profit to them. So Paul's not saying me acting not out of love will never profit anything, what he's saying is, if I do these things and I have all this gifting and all this, I can do, know everything and do everything, but I don't love the people, it's, it's of zero benefit for me. This builds me up, not at all. This expands God's kingdom in my life, not at all. He says, love is patient and kind. I'm going to read this. I actually wrote it down. This is from the, uh, uh, the Weiss translation, which is kind of an expanded translation. It's a great one if you can ever uh, get your hands on one. He says, love meekly and patiently bears ill treatment from others. Love is kind. It's gentle. It's benign. It's pervading and penetrating the whole nature. Mellowing all which would have been harsh and austere. It is not envious. Love does not brag, nor does it show itself off. It is not ostentatious. It does not have an inflated ego. It does not act unbecomingly. It does not seek after the things which are its own. It is not irritated. It is not provoked. It is not exasperated. It is not aroused to anger. It does not take into account the evil which it suffers. 
It does not rejoice in the iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It endures all things. It believes all things. It doesn't mean that it, it, it's ignorant or naive. It means that it believes good can come. It believes that people can be delivered. It believes that there's hope for individuals. And that's the next one. It hopes all things. It bears up under all things, not losing heart nor courage. Love never fails. And though you read this list and you just go, well, I don't have that. Probably, if you're like me. You read that list and maybe the, you know, the, the, the first couple, you'd be like, ah, I do that sometimes. I, I want the best. Doesn't count the evils it endures. Hmm. Okay, well, maybe I'm a little lacking. And then you keep going. You just go, is that how I relate to people? That's really good news. It's really good news if you read that passage and you say, that's not me. It's great news. You know why? Because you recognize the fundamental truth of the gospel. No good thing dwells in us save Christ. And the sooner we can recognize that the things that come out of us do not have this origin, the sooner that we can reconcile with God and acknowledge and invite a new origin into our lives. An origin that's actually already there, the Holy Spirit. And the opportunity to now say, I don't want my reactions anymore. And to go back to the same thing we talked about, the, the battle for my soul, the battle of my mind, and say, I don't want those reactions anymore. I'm inviting the Holy Spirit in. So when I become irritated, I don't excuse it and go, well, they deserved it. My latte was cold, and I paid $5. Instead, we say, you know what? That was my sin. That was my immorality. That was my lack of love. Forgive me for being irritated with you, please. And we acknowledge it, Lord, that was not your spirit. I'm rejecting this old man. I'm rejecting the old life, the sinful nature of who I was. And I'm inviting your Holy Spirit in. And all of a sudden it's crazy because we become honest with people. People begin to see something that they don't see in anybody else. They see someone who's honest. I treated you poorly. And the remarkable thing, and we're way out of time, but the remarkable thing Obviously, it's better to never sin against someone. Like, that's the better plan. But there's something remarkable in reconciliation. Because reconciliation doesn't happen in this world, maybe you might bury the hatchet. Maybe, but, uh, you know, as far as, like, people actually saying, will you please forgive me? When was the last time you heard that from someone who wasn't someone who loved Jesus? When you're at the store and the clerk has a bad day and treats you like garbage, when was the last time that, that you, they turned around and said, you know what, will you forgive me? That was just, I was being, I was wrong. It doesn't happen. When was the last time a coworker said that to you? If anything, you get this kind of like, uh, yeah, sorry about it earlier. But the amazing thing is when we acknowledge, I was wrong, and that wasn't Christ. It doesn't rob people of love. It doesn't, it doesn't steer them away. It shows them Christ in you. It shows them the power of the Holy Spirit. It shows them a truly changed life. As Jesus told us that they'll know you by your love. So we can deal with disappointment and we can be Barnabas. And it's all going to come through the same venue. Acknowledging and welcoming and appropriating the Holy Spirit and his convictions into our life on a moment-by-moment basis. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your kindness. And Lord, thank you for the power that is in work in us, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Lord, we don't want to thwart, thwart your power with our free will. We want to now invite you to be in our lives and to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Lord, we're very thankful. Let's just take a minute, and if you would like to invite the Holy Spirit into your life afresh, or if you'd like to invite Jesus' forgiveness and his free gift into your life, we're just going to take a minute right now and I'll just ask you, just lift your hand in the air. Just take a minute just to acknowledge your need before the Lord. My eyes are shut. It's not your need before me, but your need before the Lord. And Father, we just want to invite you afresh into our hearts. Or Lord, we want to invite you for the first time of our, in our entire life and acknowledge to you that there's no good thing that dwells in us. Lord, thank you for paying for our sin at Calvary and bleeding for us. Lord, we want to invite you into our life in every capacity that we can. And we want to ask you to change our life. Lord, please don't stop convicting us. 
Please don't stop working in our hearts. Please fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit. Enable us to outreach to our community and to those that are closest and those who are farthest from us. Lord, help us to be, uh, lead us to be those uh, that are making a difference for your kingdom. You're very kind to us. We freely acknowledge that in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys.